All right, welcome in, everybody. Thanks for joining us for a Wednesday edition of Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Meem. Appreciate that very much. Glad you decided to pick this radio show. This is Tony Beam, Director of Church and Community Engagement for the Tim Brazier campus of North Greenville University, where Christ makes the difference and where we are equipping transformational leaders for the church and for society. Also serve as Director of Public Policy for the South Carolina Baptist Convention, and I'm the interim pastor currently at Five Forks Baptist Church over in Simpsonville. We meet at 1030 every Sunday morning, and if you don't have a church home, come on by. We'd love for you to stop by, hear me preach. I'm preaching through the book of Ephesians this Sunday. I'll be talking about uh, Ephesians chapter 2, faith, hope, and love. That's uh, the only. That's not the only place. Corinthians is not the only place that you find those three things operating together. So we'll talk about that on Sunday if you'd like to join us. Uh, okay, where to begin? Um, we're going to talk about the church today some. Uh, I'm going to take advantage of Austin being here because uh, he's has a lot of questions and stuff about church and theology, and uh, it makes me think. So I, <laughs> it's kind of like Gomer Pyle. I, I just I just hear him all the time in my head, which is explains a lot about why I am who I am. Is that I hear Gomer Pyle in my head all the time, but I just I just remember the Andy Griffith show makes you think. So. He would say say that. That's a lot of highlighting so, in that magazine you've got over there. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't even know if I should tell people that I should subscribe to Christianity Today. <gasps> yes! That left-leaning, oh, lost publication that's gone so far. It's actually pretty good. Um, I mean, look. You love the darkness, don't you? Do I, do I, do I read this? Is every word in here... Do I treat it with the same reverence that I would the Scripture? No. Do I read a lot of these articles with skepticism, and do I see some outright um, wrong interpretation from some of the writers? You betcha. But also, there's some thoughtful pieces by people that are asking legitimate questions that deserve our attention. So, therefore, I keep looking. I also read World, World Magazine. A lot more than I do Christianity Today, but I found this article and was fascinated by it. We'll we'll take it up in a little bit, but essentially, it's um, the 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 title's what got me. Why church is the wrong question? That's the wrong question to ask. And the author is saying that the reason we're struggling with identifying what the church is to the culture is that we're asking the wrong questions about the nature of the church. So I thought that might be a good discussion for us to have. And she, she gives some really good examples here. Um, her name, and I looked up the website. I didn't have time to look at it long. But it's Kirsten Sanders. She's a Ph.D. from Emory University. She's a theologian and founder of Kinesi, Theological, uh, Kinesi Theo- Theology Collective. So it's a website where they do theology. They You can sign up to take courses on theology. You can read, uh, you know, think pieces about theology, definitions of theology, that kind of thing. I perused it, um, and I didn't find anything, you know, they, they don't have a, um, a LGBT flag or anything in the corner. Or I mean, it, it looked pretty straightforward in my um, perusal. So, I mean, if I dive in there, I might find, I might find all kinds of, of things. 
But um, so far, I wasn't able to find anything that would. And this article is extremely thoughtful, well done, and you know it made me think. So I thought I'd would talk about it here in a little bit. But first, I want to keep a promise that I made yesterday, and uh, probably the best way I know that to do that is to go to National Review. Dan McLaughlin is writing today about the Supreme Court majority, and he says after the questions and answers yesterday of the Biden student loan forgiveness program that the majority seemed to be skeptical. Uh, here's the way he described it. The Supreme Court heard arguments today on two challenges to the edict. The first session covered Biden versus Nebraska, which is the more direct of the two challenges because state entities are claiming losses from their roles as holders and servicers of loans, whereas the second set of challengers in the Department of Education versus Brown are people left out of the program who claim that they were injured by the failure to follow proper administrative procedures. So, um, you know, that so you got and, and I didn't really talk about this a lot before the arguments, but you do have two approaches. I mentioned this yesterday. Biden versus Nebraska, the reason that's the more direct challenge is because you have actual bankable or unbankable, should we say, losses because of the state. There are state entities that if you just forgive $400 billion worth of student loans, there are stakeholders in, in the states that are going to lose a lot of money and servicers of the loans are going to be forced out of business. Um, and, and, you know, their livelihoods are at stake. So they have something to lose. Usually in a Supreme Court case, there's something to gain and something to lose. And in the Department of Education versus Brown, you have people who are claiming, okay, we've been excluded. You know, it's really kind of weird. The first set of complainants say, you can't do this because you're going to hurt us. The second complainant says, you've done this and you're hurting us So, <laughs> because we're not included. So it's an interesting conundrum for the court. But according to Dan McLaughlin, um, the initial signs are ominous. I love that word, ominous. I just like to say it because that's, that's one of the more intelligent words that I seem to be able to pronounce without a lot of trouble. So anyway, the uh, signs are ominous for the Biden administration, whose only real chance of surviving these cases is to persuade the court that none of these challengers have standing to sue. Um, as to the question of the legality of the program, the post-9-11 HEROES Act, the theoretical basis for Biden's emergency order, gives the Secretary of Education the power to waive or modify any statutory or regulatory provision applicable to the student financial assistance programs when necessary in connection with a war <laughs> or other military operation or national emergency. And, of course, national, national emergency is the keyword here. I told you it was because of COVID. I said that yesterday. You were talking about all about the law, the law, the law. What does the law say? And I'm like, no, it's about COVID. The law doesn't matter when you COVID. COVID well, just makes all that other stuff go away. Yeah, but COVID fits within the rubric of a national emergency. That's well, the that's whole point. that's why we have to forgive all the student loan debt, you know, because no, of COVID. No, we don't have to, because if you read the law, the law, the law that I was talking about yesterday. Oh, there you go again. The wording of the law states that the president, nor the uh, secretary of education, has the power to suspend the program. No, they I'm have the power well, to modify. Did you hear me? I channeled my inner Ronald Reagan. I don't know if you heard that. There you go again. 
Okay. By contrast, various – and when is Gary coming back? Let me look at <laughs> – that's my watch. That's about another four days. Okay. By contrast, various specific programs under the Higher Education Act statutorily authorize the Secretary of Education to cancel student loans. This is what they're saying here. Nebraska's Solicitor General, representing the challengers, noted, among other things, not only that waive or modify is a more limited grant of power, but also that waiving or modifying provisions is narrower than waiving or modifying the existence of the loans themselves. Under that reading, the executive branch has the power to do things such as pause payments or waive requirements for qualifying for particular programs. For example, allowing a borrower to say there's a word I don't like to say borrower borrower it's too many r's in a row there's yeah. too and, yeah, and, a w and it's hard to get a w in there it definitely is they're all glides them. from a linguistic standpoint that makes perfect sense for example allowing a borrower to qualify for having spent a certain number of years as a teacher without those having been consecutive years if the teaching service was interrupted by a military emergency that's the, that was the intent of this thing okay it was to to, if, a, if a teacher could not qualify because they were sent to war by the government that, and, and having consecutive years of teaching, then they made an exception so that that teacher could qualify, which makes sense. The government can't tell you, you have to go over here and do this. You have no choice. We'll lock you up or you'll have to go to Canada. Or, and then they come back and they say, oh, oh, you can't qualify for this government program because you didn't teach these consecutive years. You know, you can imagine the teacher going, what are you talking about? I got on a plane, a boat, I, I mean, helicopters. I, I went over there. I did what you told me to do. Yeah. And yeah. I think maybe the lesson to be learned for Congress, and Congress will never learn this lesson, is that you need to be precise in your language because they did write a pretty sweeping piece of legislation. The language of the HEROES Act is very broad. And so, I mean, you can drive a battleship through the hole that they created for this type of situation. Well, and now, here's, here's the thing. L l laws are often broadly construed with the trust resting in the executive branch to rightly discern the intent of Congress. I think that's super important what you just said. But a narrow, a more narrow construing of the law can actually disqualify people that the law was intended to help. Definitely. So it, you really do. What it comes down to is you have to trust the people who have your trust. I mean, when the people give their trust to the executive branch, if the executive, executive branch fails to hold that trust but instead decides to push an agenda that's based by a bunch of progressives shouting in his ear, then – this is what you get, Just which is a Just as a point of curiosity, the HEROES Act was passed in 2002? Uh, was, it, was, it, was it 1998? I, I, you I thought said it was 2004. Okay. Maybe. But it was in the Bush administration that passed it. Yeah, it was it during the Bush. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was uh, post-9-11. And so. I, I don't remember what the nature of the control of Congress was during uh, you know, that mm -hmm. time frame. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason I ask it is this, is, is that if a, if a Republican-led legislature— passes a law that's going to be signed by a Republican president, there's less care and there's less tension on the rope, where if you have divided government, you're going to—a bipartisan piece of legislation by nature has to be a little tighter around the edges. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're back to talking about the arguments yesterday in uh, President Biden's executive order that would— uh basically cost taxpayers about $400 billion because it's just going to forgive a bunch of loans— uh, that were that students took out and, and of course were given in good faith and 
you know, they were u- to use the money for their education. And then when they graduated, after six months, they have to start paying the loans back. So um, well, I was going through Dan McLaugh- McLaughlin's analysis here uh, because he's always, he always does a great job talking about Supreme Court arguments. Uh, let's look at the, the Solicitor General's argument on behalf of Missouri. Remember, Missouri is one of the plaintiffs saying that they have state agencies, they have uh, stakeholders in the state of Missouri that's going to lose a bunch of money if this thing goes through. Uh, on behalf, or it's upheld on behalf of Missouri, found a receptive audience with Chief Justice John Roberts, whose vote would be essential if Biden wants to win this case. Roberts began the argument by citing an opinion by Justices Justice Antonin Scalia, quipping that the statutory term modify can't be read so broadly that one, one would say that the French Revolution modified the status of aristocrats <laughs> sent to the guillotine. <laughs> Boy, that sounds... That, that just sounds like something Scalia would say. <laughs> Revolution modified this, uh, uh, this, this can clearly, this case clearly irks Roberts and his sense that the major questions doctrine prevents presidents from ruling by executive edict and skipping procedural steps. Now, you can imagine Roberts not liking that, right? I mean, Roberts is a minimalist. Roberts wants to, the Supreme Court to make little bitty decisions rather than sweeping ones. And, I mean, you can, you can see this in the way that he writes in his opinions. Uh, he doesn't like the fact that the Supreme Court can overrule the will of the, of, the, of the legislature. And if it does, it better have a hundred reasons why. And even then, he's going to apply those reasons in the narrowest, narrowest of circumstances. So this is Roberts. Now, what Roberts doesn't like here is the fact that President Biden thinks that the executive, the fact that he's president of the United States gives him the right to just completely do away with a government program that Congress enacted. So he, he's, he's thinking, you know, what, what, it, it, again, minimalist, Biden, maximalist. I've got the power to do away. I can, I can wave my hand and student loans disappear. And Robert says, hold on a minute. You, who gave you that power? This is, a, this, is, this is law that was passed by the legislature. You can't just come in and decide you don't like it. So he's, he's in favor of what the legislature does over executive power. And that's going to bode well for those, you know, it's it's against the Biden administration that he feels that way. Uh, and it's going to bode well for those who think this is just a power grab by the president, which it is. Um, Justice Elena Kagan scoffed at all this business about executive power, arguing that Congress had given away such broad powers in the HEROES Act that it effectively let the horse out of the barn. Justice Brett Kavanaugh expressed the view that wave is indeed an extremely broad word, but as usual, he didn't show his cards when Missouri's lawyer noted the additional problems with labeling this as just a waiver. Uh, yeah, Kavanaugh is the most cagey um, of the justices. And when I, when I mean cagey, he just doesn't telegraph his moves. Uh, you don't, you don't want to play poker or chess with him because you're not going to be able to figure him out in advance. Uh, the major questions doctrine is a canon of statutory construction, one intended to protect the power of Congress from being consumed by creative lawyering in the executive branch. 
It holds that courts should be particularly skeptical about reading into vague statutory language and executive power to issue sweeping rules on an issue if that issue presents a major contested public policy question. And that's exactly what you have here. You have a major contested public policy question that the legislature has ruled upon. And so and some and some language that could feasibly be construed as to mean that they do have the authority to do what they're doing. Right. It could. Right. It, it doesn't because that was not the intent of the legislature. And that's what the Supreme Court is trying to discern is what was the intent of the legislature in originally passing the Heroes Act. Well, and there's actually that. Yeah. And it's that's called the major uh, major questions doctrine. Yeah. And and it's it's aptly named. The Solicitor General bet heavily on a highly implausible effort to argue that the major questions doctrine is supposed to limit the executive from making regulatory policy that affects individual liberty, but not to prevent the executive from making policy regarding federal benefits. So a creative, creative argument. You know, you, you come back and say, well, the major, major questions doctrine doesn't really apply to the federal benefits if it relates to finances. It requires, it applies to individual liberty. So, and the reason he's making that argument is because this court has established itself as one that is highly interested in protecting individual liberty, whether that's religious liberty or the ability of people to make their own decisions in all in all walks of life. So if you come back and say, oh, yes, well, um, we, we, what we're really talking about here is individual liberty, you're trying to do a bait and switch to move the argument into the realm that the court has already demonstrated it has favor in those arguments. But... Uh, it didn't. I, I don't think that's that's going to work, um, and neither does McLaughlin because the the implicit assumption here is that spending money can never harm anybody. <laughs> it's rather amazing that um, that wait a minute, it's rather amazing to make such an argument at a time of high inflation and rising debt. And there was no sign that even the liberal justices were buying that argument. If anything, given the history of the British monarchy's battles with Parliament, the framers of the Constitution would have been more alarmed at the prospect of the executive claiming sweeping authority to spend taxpayer money without any appropriation by the legislature. Yet think about that. Taxation without representation. That's pretty much why we're here. It's not the reason, but it's one of the major reasons. Of the, of the American Revolution. So even the Solicitor General conceded that the case raises a politically significant issue, and she sounded if she knew she would lose this argument <laughs> and really just needed a safe-facing way not to—a safe-facing— Okay, a face-saving way— Did you way. want me to say that one for you, yeah, too? Yeah, you probably need Try to say that Try that borrower word again. Face-saving way to not concede it. So given the weakness of the administration's position on the legality of the program and how unlikely it is that there are more than three votes for it, the main focus of both arguments then became on the standing to sue. So you can, you know, the, the question might be moot if the court were to decide that neither of the litigants had standing. That's what happened in the election fraud cases. That, you know, you, just all these cases, they would bring evidence— and but a lot of the evidence was not compelling because even in the case, even in the the 
situations where the evidence was allowed to be presented, it was not compelling enough to change the outcome of the election to the to those even conservative judges who heard the evidence. But in most of the time, those cases were tossed because of the lack of standing of the people who were bringing the case. So, I mean, who has to sue? Does Dr. Tony Beam have to file a federal lawsuit that says, I paid back my Parent PLUS loans and they're not having to pay back theirs, so I suffered harm, right? Well, I, I, yeah, and I don't say I'm, I don't know what that standing, what the definition of standing is. I think it's whatever well, it's the court— Well, it's just because the state of Missouri is not suffering any financial harm. Now, they're saying that they are because they're, they're saying— Well, they, they are. In, they, they're saying lost revenue. Well, that, yeah, but, that if the company that resides within Missouri suffers, then thereby we are deprived of revenue that we would have gathered in taxes okay. from that. So that's Tax, their harm argument. Yeah, yeah. But, but that's a—they're they're the— It's pretty tangential. Y- yes, in other words, they're down the chain Second of tier people harm. that, that That's get right. hurt. That's and right. so the question is, why didn't uh, Mohilla, yeah, Mohilla, which is right. Mohilla, they, which they is service the, my, my, my uh, student loans. Okay, so, yeah. it's the entity. Mm-hmm. So why didn't, the, you know, Missouri owns some of the loans, the state of Missouri, hmm. that Mohilla uh, manages, but, not, but, but Mohilla is the one who is the primary uh, litigant here or in the minds of the court, should be. Notice, notably, the Solicitor General conceded that Mahilla would have standing to sue. Okay. It, would, it would have been better if Mahilla had brought suit in its own name, given that it has the statutory sue-and-be-sued power that allows it to litigate its own rights. The justices and the parties were left to speculate about why exactly Mahilla hadn't sued. Justice Jackson suggested that they might make the money back from effects of the program in other ways, while Justice Samuel Alito suggested that Mohilla's dependent relationship with the federal student loan system made it fearful of going to court. (laughs) Can you imagine it being fearful? Yes, I can. Fearful of going to court. Yeah, they sue the Biden administration. The Biden administration says, you know that contract that you had with us for student loans? Mm Bye-bye. And that's the end of Mohilla. Yeah, I mean, if that were to happen. So Wall Street is fickle and not always right, but SoFi Technologies, who's one of the primary players in the in the student loan refinance game, their yeah. stock went up four percent yesterday. So people yeah. are, you know, people who have money and skin in the game are thinking that this is going to go it's against get the Biden thrown. administration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, the sleeper case is the second one, but it involves a much more convoluted theory of standing. Two student loan debtors who were not covered by the Biden program argued that it should have gone through the mandatory negotiated rulemaking and notice and comment administrative procedures under the Higher Education Act and the Administrative Procedures Act. Of course, if the edict was authorized under the HEROES Act, it would be exempt from both of those requirements. So, that, mm-hmm. see, this is the thing. Mm-hmm. For the government to argue in favor of the HEROES Act, then it pretty much it pretty much rules out any executive action. The, it, these these other acts mm-hmm. that were put in line to require a certain process that they had to go through before the executive order could have been uh, issued. So it would be exempt from both of those. So their argument requires the court to decide that legal question. Under their uh, theory, 
Use of the HEROES Act deprived them of a fair administrative process in which to advocate for including them in the program. There's surprisingly strong case law supporting a broad reading of standing to assert procedural rights and that the Solicitor General made an unpersuasive effort to distinguish their standing from that of people asserting equal protection violations in which unfairness itself is an injury, even if a victory in court might just strike down a program entirely. The liberal justices argue arguing that it was speculative to think that Biden would try again under the HEA if his HEROES Act for, uh, forgiveness was struck down, were not the only skeptics. Just, Justice Neil Gorsuch grumbled at using such an indirect attack to obtain a nationwide injunction against the program, and Justice Clarence Thomas has argued in the past that limited standing should limit the sweep of the relief that the Ooh, court orders. Interesting. Yeah. A lot of so, moving parts to that decision. In, in, in any event, here's the last paragraph. In any event, Biden's team is unlikely to get a ruling vindicating the legality of its actions or even a ruling saying that nobody can challenge them in court. The best outcome for the administration is to locate a fifth vote beyond the three liberals and possibly Barrett for the for the view that Missouri can't represent Mohila, coupled with appealing off of a few of the conservatives to scale back standing to complain about administrative procedural violations. I could see that being the case. Yeah, but that's not going to happen. You don't think so? so? You no. You think it's just going to be straight up 6-3? No, I, I, well, I think it'll be... Six, I think it'll smackdown. be six three. Okay. I, I I don't think it'll be five four. Hmm. At at a minum, it's five four. Uh, but smackdown. Roberts might get his way in terms of curtailing the sweep of the the scope of the decision. So, just as always, it's going to come down. <laughs> going to come down to Roberts. I, I want to uh, take this segment to give you an example of how Republicans need to operate when they're on a committee asking questions of a witness. Now. This is not a huge deal because we're talking about uh, the Biden administration has nominated um, this, this person, Dr. Colleen Shogun, to be the national archivist. Now, in, in the scope of things, you know, tensions with China, um, you know, questions about illegal immigration, th- this thing doesn't rise to the top. You know, who's who's going to take care of the national records? Now, it is significant because the archivists take care of the past, and you cannot change the, the, the present until you obliterate the past when it comes particularly to the United States because we have a rich history of liberty, um, you know, morality in in decision making, those kind of things. And if you become the archivist, you can do all kinds of goofy things with the national archives to rewrite history and therefore af- affect the present. You know, I uh, one of my favorite. I think it's my favorite of the Men in Black movies. Um, I I like those movies. Uh, I like all three of them. Some people don't like the second one. They say it's goofy. Uh, I but the third one is is an amazing film to me because of the way that it ends, and I'm not going to tell you because it'll ruin it for you. You need to watch it. No, no, no. But It's okay to ruin a movie that's that old. It's fine. If yeah, people no, haven't no. watched it by now, they just need to. I know. No, no, no. I, I, I want people, because it really does. I mean, there's a poignant uh, ending that is a twist that I didn't see coming. Now, right. maybe I'm blind. If, if you want to know about the ending to it, I'll just post it on Facebook so you don't have to go and waste all your life watching Men in Black. So just just so you know. See okay. That, see, that's why I'm never going to make like king of the world is because I do stuff like that. Now, I know because you're not going to live long enough to. 
Just kidding. Just kidding. Look, um, my point that I was trying to make, the plot about Men in Black 3 is that there's this nefarious character who gets locked up 40 years prior to the movie beginning. Uh, This character escapes, goes back in time to change time from the from and do it from from the past. In other words, they they are f- affecting the present by changing what happened in the past, and that's exactly what a national archivist would attempt to do, who is as progressive and as big a liar as Dr. Colleen Shogun. And Josh Hawley is calling her on this. She's under oath, okay, and she has made public statements about her Twitter account, which, by the way. She locked right before she goes to answer questions because she didn't want the members of the committee looking at her Twitter account. She misrepresented her Twitter account. And then when Senator Hawley was able to get into her Twitter account and get some of the tweets, he can't get them all, but he's gotten enough to demonstrate that she's lying about the nature of her Twitter account, and she's doing it to the face of this committee and keeps giving the same answer every time he asks relevant questions, which, you know, I, I got to tell you, um, Holly is, is amazing here. The, and, and the whole reason, again, this is not like, oh, this is a big, a, a huge deal. We've got to really, you know, lean into this, um, because it's the national archivist. No, the big deal is how Holly questions this witness and the answers that he's getting. All right. For some reason, why is this doing to me? It doing. Okay, here it is. I was just thinking, why? The, here we go. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Dr. Shogun, when you were here last year, a number of senators asked you, including me, a series of questions about articles you'd written, public statements you had made on social media that were, I have to say, pretty grossly partisan, and I thought offensive, and you and I went back and forth about it. After that, a number of us asked you questions for the record relating to these statements, I want to follow up on one of them. I, in particular, okay. Let me, I'm going to jump in to help you gain some understanding. There was there were informal times where senators uh, were able to ask her questions that were essentially off the record, and they had some pretty sharp back and forth discussions off the record. But now she is under oath testifying before the committee. So she is very definitely on the record, and that's the point that Senator Hawley is making. Now let's get on to the questions. You to give us a full accounting of the public posts that you had made on Twitter. You had locked your Twitter account before you came before this committee. It had been previously been public. I asked you to provide the, the public posts that had previously been available on Twitter because the ones that we have were pretty disturbing. You responded as follows, and I quote, my personal Twitter account is comprised of posts about my mystery novels, events at the White House Historical Association, Pittsburgh sports teams, travels, and my dog, end quote. Is this an accurate statement? Yes, Senator. I just remind you you're in droves. Is this an accurate statement? Yes, Senator. Well, let's talk a little bit about your, your Twitter posts then that I was asking you about. On Okay, uh, just to, again, for clarification, she made a statement saying that her Twitter post had nothing to do with anything except her dog, some uh, some active uh, government things that she was involved in, the fact that she's a mystery novelist, and a couple of other innocuous things, things that, you know, have nothing to do whatsoever 
with her political views. So that's her statement. That's her sworn statement on the record. And now Senator Hawley is going to point out that that's just a bold-faced lie. Here we go. February 18th, 2022, you posted on Twitter bemoaning the dropping of mask requirements for children, including those under the age of five. Do you remember that post? No, Senator. That, those tweets were in my personal capacity. Uh, no, 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 no. I asked you, would you give all public posts that you had made on Twitter? You said no, effectively, and you said that your Twitter posts consisted of mystery novels, events at the White House Historical Association, Pittsburgh sports teams, travels, and my dog. And you just told me now under oath that you stood by that. So now let's talk about your Twitter posts. On February 18th, 2022, you posted bemoaning the fact that mask requirements for children under the age of five, one of whom I happen to have, by the way, have been dropped. Is that a post about your dog or sports teams? My social media is in my personal capacity. Answer Senator. my question, please, because you've testified under oath that you only posted about your dog and sports teams and novels. And you also said you wouldn't give this committee any of your public posts. So is your post on February 18th, 2022, bemoaning the lifting of mask requirements for children under the age of five, who I might just ask all of the data has said is extremely harmful to children, these mask requirements. We'll leave that aside for now. Is that a post about your dog or sports teams? Yes or no? My social media is in my personal capacity, Senator. Yes or no, Ms. Shogan. You are under oath before this committee. And I have to say, you have placed this issue squarely in record by repeatedly refusing to answer. Yes or no? My personal, my social media is in my personal capacity, Senator. So you're not answering my question. Let's talk about another post. Okay. We're not going to go through any more. At the end of this, she maintained, she gave that same answer as he pulled out post after post that was clearly political and clearly revealed her to be a progressive, someone who was biased, someone who would not create or treat our national archives as the national treasure, but as an opportunity to rewrite history, very likely. And he pointed this out, and he demanded that because she lied to the committee, that he, he said, I'm voting against her, and I strongly, strongly urge everybody else in this on this committee to vote her against her for that reason. Now, the Democrats rule this committee. They rule every committee because they, are, they have the majority in the Senate. So it's likely she's going to be confirmed. Uh, I, you know, it may come down to a tiebreaker. It may come down to what Kirsten Cinema um, and Joe Manchin decide to do, which so many things do. But it's 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 still likely that she's going to get confirmed, and she's lying. I mean, is it could it be any clearer? This is black and white. This is not gee, there's some wiggle room here. This is she made a statement, and 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 this is what the point I wanted to make. If you're gonna if you're gonna go after somebody, how good is Senator Hawley at doing this? First of all, he's not hysterical, he's not over, over the top, he's 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 got an incredible voice. I wish I had those pipes. I mean, he's got the voice, right? But I mean, he's he's making this argument in a very logical, coherent. Here's what you said. Here's what the evidence says. They're diametrically opposed. What is your explanation? Well, that's my personal account, and I'm. Same answer. Wouldn't even answer the question. Uh, totally unresponsive. That disqualifies her. She is not qualified for this office because she is a not an honest person 
and she will not be responsive to the questions that she's being asked by the panel. But now, don't look for that to make any difference. Um, all right, something else here. We're going to have this. Uh, we'll have this discussion about the church in the next. So, are you prepared now? Have you perused the article sufficiently? I did. Okay, good. You look uh, sad. So no, Rick. On, Rick on Facebook commented. Yeah. I thought this was good as an add-on to what you're saying. Was that he said honesty is not a left-wing progressive value. It is not. So social change is. Well, but honesty is not. That's a that's a good statement because I want to I want to hammer that for mm-hmm. a second. Mm-hmm. Marxism teaches that it is moral to lie if the lie itself upends the system and brings about the uh, or supports the proletariat's desire to over overrule, override the bourgeoisie. So, in other words, you can lie like a rug if your end result is that you're going to take out the enemy. I'm trying so. to make a list here of words. Do you like ominous? you don't like borrower? Do you like bourgeoisie, too? Is that just trying to make a list over here? I don't know. I don't I don't particularly like it. Well, the, the but, way your eyebrows went up when you said it, it was kind of made me think well, you liked I was, it. Well, I was concentrating, trying to make sure I got all the <laughs> syllables in the right place. That's a big word. For a country boy. So anyway, because when you get right down to it, I'm just a country boy that went to college. Okay. That's really, <laughs> that's all that, that I am. Um, I ought to change the podcast title, maybe country boy goes to college or something that, that probably generates some attention. Um, but, but just, re- yes, lying is a virtue. I, it, it, the truth isn't a virtue. I'm sure that lying is a virtue. I'm sure to that the she's left. getting all sorts of kudos on YouTube as though, and she of owned, course. you know, she owned, owned uh, him. Uh, yeah. whatever with Josh Hawley. Yeah. You know, in uh, the only universe that you can own someone in that scenario is if lying and obfuscation. I can't say that one or not. Obfuscation. Put that one on the left yeah. side list. You put that one on the other. Is if that's your goal, then yeah. But if your goal is transparency, honesty to the American people because you're about to have a big job in the U.S. government that is going to be paid for by your tax dollars, then you might want something a little different. And people of sense, and particularly moral sense, see that clearly. Jim said on Facebook, when honesty is in doubt or clearly an issue, issue vote no to confirm. It's a simple position right. for simple. a sound-minded representative. Simple. It really is. That is. That's, yep. all, that's all that should be said. Unfortunately, that's not all that will be done because this will come down to politics. Uh, all right, there's an important case that is taking place right now. Uh, a Christian college in Missouri is asking the United States Supreme Court to halt a Biden administration directive that requires schools to allow male students to be housed in women-only dormitories or use the girls' showers. Now, th- and this is, this is something that the Obama administration put into place right before Obama went out of office. Uh, President Trump came in. He got rid of it. Now Biden is in, and he put it back into place. Is this Appalachian State? No, this is Missouri. Oh, okay. This is is College of the Ozarks. College of the Ozarks. That's what it was. So, so here's, you know, they filed a petition for um, before the Supreme Court asking the court to block a U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development directive forcing the academic institution to open up gender-specific campus dorms to those of the opposite sex. Now, you understand, this is a, this is a Christian school that is being told by the government, you have to let men in the women's dorm, and you have to let women in the men's dorm, particularly in intimate spaces, in restrooms, locker rooms, and in the dorm rooms themselves. 
The directive requires the college to reverse its housing policies for 1,300 students, read the petition in part, and unless the directive is enjoined, it makes the college cease statements of its policies, preventing it from following through on ongoing plans and communications for student housing consistent with its religious beliefs. This jeopardizes the college's ability to function, causes emotional harm to students who rely on the college's housing policies, and dissuades Christian students from attending the college. Yeah, look, uh, College of the Ozarks will be put out of business by this. So would North Greenville University, let me just say. I mean, if, if the day comes when we were to face the possibility of being shut down or forced in any way to allow males and females to use the same bathrooms, locker rooms, intimate spaces, and even dorm rooms. Um, We cannot function. We would have to cease to be a Christian institution in order to do that. We would have to become a secular institution in order to do it. And that would defeat the whole purpose of the university. We cannot be where Christ makes the difference. We cannot be a place where we turn out transformational leaders for the church and society if we're not able for those transformational leaders to be informed by the truth of God's Word based on the fact that we're a Southern Baptist institution. Now, one of the things that gives us some shielding here as North Greenville is that we are a a Christian college that is associated with a major denomination. And and so, you yes, we're a private school. College of the Ozarks, as, as my understanding, doesn't have that umbrella. And so it makes it harder for them to say, to get exemptions based on Title, uh, title IX. North, North Greenville right now is operating under a Title IX exemption. And there are a number of Christian colleges that are doing the same. But we were able to demonstrate a long-term affiliation with the Southern Baptist Convention, and we were also able to affiliate a long tradition of Christian uh, practice that says that this would violate our deeply held religious beliefs and actually nullify the mission of the college. And that's what the College of the Ozarks is arguing. We hope the Supreme Court will take this case to halt the government's inappropriate order targeting religious institutions and to respect the privacy, dignity, and safety of female students. In 2021, President Joe Biden issued an executive order that required the Fair Housing Act anti-discrimination measures to include gender identity under the category of sex. As a result of the change, the college filed suit against the federal government in April 2021, arguing that the new policy would force them to house male students in women's dorms. U.S. District Judge Roseanne Ketchmark of the Western District of Missouri, an appointee of former President Barack Obama, ruled against the college in May of 2021. In July of 2022, a three-panel judge panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit upheld the lower court court ruling two to one, arguing that HUD policy did not impact the college. Judge Stephen Michael Colleton, an appointee of former President George W. Bush, authored the majority opinion, opinion, concluding that existing religious freedom measures sufficiently protected the school. So the school, in other words, the court has already said that religious liberty protections are in place. College of the Ozarks is saying that's not enough because eventually, without the Supreme Court weighing in on this, 
we will be subject to being forced to do this because right now those religious exemptions are you know, are based on what you know it 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 it, it is tenuous so that's why the college is going to the Supreme Court now. And, of course, going to the Supreme Court now is probably the right play, time and place because the Supreme Court that's in place is very much uh, protective of the rights of students, the rights of people to express their religious beliefs without government interference or for the government being able to force people to behave in ways that are contrary to their religious beliefs. Religious liberty is big on college, uh, on the Supreme Court's agenda. So we'll see. Um, you know, don't know how this one's going to turn out. Right now, nobody's forcing College of the Ozarks to act because of religious liberty recognition, but I, th- I don't see anything wrong with them saying to the Supreme Court, uh, we've already had two courts say that, you know, rule against us, even though they're ruling against us because they're saying the HUD regulations won't affect us. Maybe not now, but what about in the future? That That's a legitimate question, I think, for the court to consider. We need a ruling here.